Steve Lawson, in his book called Heaven Helps Us, tells a story of a man by the name of William Montague Dyke. When he was 10 years old, he was in an accident in which he was blinded. Despite his disability, he graduated from a university in England with high honors. He went to school and he fell in love with a woman who was the daughter of a high-ranking Navy officer. And they had planned the wedding and in the midst of the plans for this wedding, uh, William had an opportunity to have eye surgery that just might be able to correct his vision so that he could see. And he decided that he wanted his first sight to be his bride-to-be. And so he planned it out that on his wedding day, right after his, his uh, uh, bride-to-be marched down the aisle, that the bandages would be taken off of his eyes. And so sure enough, with all the pomp and circumstance of royalty in England, the wedding occurred and she marched down and they took the bandages off of his eyes. Of course, it would be anticlimactic if he said, ooh, she's ugly. But instead, he said, she's more beautiful than I ever imagined. And I can't help but think that that is a wonderful illustration of the reality of what it will be like in eternity when we gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and see Him in all the wonder and splendor of who He is that we would realize indeed He's more glorious, more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. And Jesus hints at this reality as He's praying for His, his disciples because this is his heart desire. His desire, he prays, is that we would be with him where he is, that we would see his glory. There's many petitions throughout this, uh, this high priestly prayers that's often called of Jesus. He, he prays earlier on for the protection of his disciples. He says, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would what? Protect them from the evil one. He prays for their protection. He prays for their purification. As he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He wants them to be set apart from the rest of the world. We see as well he prays for their unity. We saw that last time that he prays that they would be one even as we are one, he says to the Father. And then this petition we have before us here in verse 24, it, it really in many ways doesn't come across as a petition but as, a, as, as an assertion of his desire. And sometimes that's how our prayers come across, right? Where we just say, Lord, I long for this. And that's often how petitions and prayers from children come across. Dad, I want candy. Jesus' heart, passion, is for his disciples to be with him where he is. And, and so in, in all of this, I think, points us future as we know that this prayer is, is ultimately not answered here and now. But it's answered in the future when we gaze upon the glory of Jesus. And, and so I want us to draw from this passage three realities that would give us joyful confidence of our future as believers. The first is the passion of Jesus. The passion, his, his desire, his burning desire. In verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, the glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what's amazing here is Jesus expresses his passion for 
for this reality, namely that his disciples would be with him. Now, we, can, we look at this passage and we say, well, weren't they with him then? But remember, we saw in the previous verses, in verse 20 of chapter 17, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So Jesus' prayer here is for all the elect people of God all the way from the beginning days of Adam until the time in which Jesus comes. He's praying that all believers would be with him. And this, by the way, this is the, this prayer of Jesus is on the tail end of a lengthy teaching on the evening before Jesus' execution. It's a teaching that stretches all the way from John chapter 14 till the end of John 17 here. Before Jesus marches to the cross, this is his lengthy teaching. Now, now some of this teaching, we, don't know, we, we gather some of it occurred in that upper room, but, but there may very well be. Perhaps this prayer was uttered uh, sometime as they were walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Or we, we don't know exactly. John doesn't tell us. But we do know at the beginning of this discourse, this is how Jesus starts his final teaching and words to his disciples. Notice in chapter 14, verse 1. As he's let his disciples know that he's going to die, he's going to depart from them, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this is how he begins this last sermon, if you will, this last teaching that I'm going to go away and I'm going to come back again. I'm going to receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And here on the tail end of Jesus' prayer for the disciples and for all the disciples of all time, he's earnestly expressing his desire to the Father. I long, I desire that they would be with me to see my glory. What an amazing desire we see here. I think it's also important to understand that this desire is more than just a kind of whimsical wish. It is almost an assertion. You know, uh, sometimes children will say things like, I want pop. I want candy. And often in my family, I have to remind them, it really doesn't matter what you want. (laughs) It matters what I decide is good for you. But, but this is not that kind of expression of a desire that Jesus is giving here because Jesus is expressing this desire in the context of one who is a mediator. One who has been given this people by the Father as he mentions to in the same verse. Richard Phillips explains, seeing the believer's assurance in the priestly ministry of Christ, we see the necessity of belonging to Jesus if we desire to be saved. Who else but Jesus has the legal right to declare his saving will in the presence of God the Father? Who else has the standing that Jesus possesses as the holy beloved, perfectly obedient and righteous son armed with the covenantal authority to save God's elect. And so what Phillips is saying here is that, you know, Jesus' declaration of his desire is a desire that is and will be answered by the Father. This heart desire is answered by the Father. Now, it may not be answered immediately, but it will be answered. All of God's people will be with Jesus one day. Not one will be missing. But I think it's worth 
us pausing here to to sit and ponder the wonder that the Savior wants His blood-bought people to be with Him. That He longs and desires that they would be with Him to see His glory. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, Jesus wants to be with you for all eternity. He wants you. Despite all your shortcomings, despite all your weaknesses and failures and sins, He wants you. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is right after David ascends to the throne as the king of Israel. If you remember the story of David, he had spent many years running from the previous king, King Saul, who wanted him dead. Even though David was no threat to the throne, he was willing to humbly wait until God ascended him to the throne. Saul was seething with jealousy and hatred, and so he spent uh, you know, many years chasing David like a, a flea in the mountains. And finally, David ascends to the throne, and 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 the normal routine amongst monarchs in the ancient world, when you ascend to the throne, you eliminate all competitors to the throne, especially any previous administration. I mean, you don't merely sick the FBI on them. You actually make them disappear. This was commonplace, so they would totally annihilate families. But David was different. David, he wanted to show kindness to somebody who was in Saul's household. The previous king, the king who wanted David dead. And so, in 2 Samuel chapter 9 says, is there not yet Anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And then they find a fellow by the name of Mephibosheth. Say that three times back to back. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. He was a a, a young man who had been crippled from his youth. He was unable to walk properly. And David invites Mephibosheth to come sit at the king's table. And can you imagine Mephibosheth getting that invitation, thinking, I very well may be walking to my death. It's all over. The king knows about me. He knows where I'm at. He's going to have me hung on the gallows or whatever. And then he finally arrives at David's palace. And and David tells him, I want you to sit at my table, at the king's table. Here's this person who, by nature, by his family descent, he was a rebel and competitor to the throne. He was a man who, who had... Tremendous weakness. He was a cripple. He, in many ways, was useless. But yet the king, for Jonathan's sake, because of his covenant, wanted to extend love and kindness to Mephibosheth. It's a beautiful picture of the reality of what Christ in God does for us. We are by nature rebels to the throne. We are useless And yet God in Christ says, come to the king's table. Jesus prays, my desire is that they would be with me where I am. That they would be at the king's table for all eternity. Friends, this is hugely important. You are wanted by Jesus to be with him forever. This should help you. This should encourage you. 
in the midst of your trying to, to aim to faithfully follow Jesus and, and see the way that you fail, you fail, you know, uh, to obey Him as you ought to. There's temptations to think, well, am I really a believer? Friend, if you are in Christ, if He is the one you trust, His will guarantees you will be with Him. His desire guarantees that you will be with Him. He will make sure that you have a place at the king's table. This is our security. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, the southern Presbyterian of couple centuries ago says when you see that high priest coming up from the altar and standing before the throne in the very midst of the throne saying to his father father I will are we not safe let the devil howl let him come with all of his retinue from the depths of hell and rage and raven over all this earth let the world enter into fatal conspiracy with the powers of darkness and rage around us. And in the midst of all this peril and the power of intercession and the royalty and the grace of our ascending head, we are safe. We are safe because Jesus says, I want them to be with me. And His will is more powerful than any other will. So friend, draw great encouragement from this. Maybe you have friends or loved ones who have died or maybe are in the throes of death. You can know that when they close their eyes in death, they will be with Jesus. And Jesus gains what you have lost. What you have lost in your sorrows, in your heartache, Jesus has gained in heaven because his heart cry has been answered as they are now with him where he is, beholding him in all of his glory. You can have great confidence and even in the midst of the sorrows and tears, a joy that they are with Jesus. For those of you who may, a year from now, five years from now, ten years, who knows if the Lord doesn't come back, you will one day be on your deathbed. And you will look back and trace over your life and see the reality of no doubt and much waste and much foolishness and all of your shortcomings and the anticipation of the, the, the uncertainties of death and the darkness that surrounds it. But even there in, in the midst of that difficulty of anticipating death, you can look to the Savior and you can hear His cry, Father, I want them to be with me. And you can know that when you close your eyes in death, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be with your Savior. You will see Him in all of His glory. And you will say like that man who saw his bride for the first time as the bandages were taken off. He's more beautiful than I could ever even have imagined. This should give you joyful anticipation. 
in the midst of a world of sorrows and trials and difficulties and heartaches and divorce and death and disease and all that we experience in this fallen and broken world. There is a promise of a world without end which we will be with Jesus forever and ever. And He wants you there to be with Him. And His desire guarantees you a spot at the table. His passion. But secondly, not only the passion of Jesus and His desire, I will that they be with me, the plan of the Father. Notice the way in which Jesus speaks of the object of His desire. Father, I desire that they also. He could have, it could say comma, believers. It could say comma, Christians. It could say comma, saints. All those would be legitimate words, but that's not the words that Jesus uses. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me. This is not a new phrase if you've been with us in the Gospel of John. It's something Jesus repeats over and over. So evidently, guess what? He wants you to remember it. He wants you to hear it. He wants you to understand it. Because this is a phrase that he repeats over and over in John 17. And it no doubt is what the author, John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wants you to take with you. To understand that the mission of Jesus did not begin 2,000 years ago. It began in eternity past. The mission of Jesus did not even start, I don't know, six, 7,000, however long it was ago that Adam and Eve partook of that fruit and plunged all of humanity into destruction. It started before then. It started in eternity past. That there was a people who had been given by the Father to the Son, entrusted to the Son. In the language of the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, just as He chose Him before the foundation of the world, that just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of His grace. That God, the Almighty God, the Trinity in eternity past had a plan, a purpose to save and elect people. And this is the fruition of this plan. This mission of Jesus in his death and his death and resurrection is accomplishing that work of redemption and so as Jesus is praying and expressing his will father I desire that they also be with me he tips us off and says those whom you have given me those who from eternity past have been given by the Father to the Son and entrusted to the Son to come in space and time and die on behalf of that people it's those ones. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me. So that the mission of Jesus started with the plan of the Father in eternity past to lay down his life on behalf of these given ones. Now, again, this is for your comfort and joy. Now, somebody may protest at this point well doesn't first timothy 2 4 say that god desires all men to be saved and it's usually asserted well that's all without exception to be saved 
And I think if you looked at that passage within its context, I, I, th- I think you would see he's talking about all kinds of people. But, but even if we said that that's what, what is meant there, that he desires all people without exception to be saved, we would have to say that that must be a different kind of desire than what we see here. Because, I mean, after all, of course, uh, I mean, Jesus wouldn't desire people not to believe in him, people to reject him. I mean, he commands all men everywhere to repent. But nonetheless, this desire here is the desire for those given ones to be with him where he is. And this desire here is the desire that will ultimately bring every one of God's people to eternal glory with him because this is part of the plan of the Father. Or let me put it this way. If Jesus' desire for you as a believer to be with him is exactly the same as his desire for somebody who will never be with him, or how about this, people who are in hell right now, then that wouldn't give you very much comfort. But this desire, the object of it is related to the given ones and to the mission of Jesus to make sure none of all that had been given are lost. Charles Ross says, but in respect, in what respects were this people given by the Father to the Son? In the first instance, he gave them in the everlasting covenant, when from all eternity he saw them lying in their guiltiness and sins, ready to perish forever. He gave them to his Son to be by him in time redeemed, renewed, and brought home to glory. Ah, justly might he have left them to perish forever in their sins, as he did the angels that fell without any reflection on his justice and without any disparagement of that goodness which created them so holy and so happy and which placed them in circumstances favorable for securing and perpetuating their happiness. But no, to permit the whole human race to perish when their covenant head had transgressed did not seem good to him whose name is love. So friends, this plan of the Father to give a people to the Son is so that you would have joyful anticipation knowing that this is part of a greater plan a plan that did not begin with you a plan that is not dependent upon your fickle heart your heart that is wavering Your heart that is so often not steadfast. I mean, how's that New Year's resolution going? We're so often fickle. We take up a habit, a good habit, lasts a week, two weeks, maybe a month. Or maybe we're, we're of the more self-disciplined type and we, we, can, we can form good habits but there's still areas of your life where it's not so good and you know you'd like to change but it's been very stubborn for you to change. I want to tell you that because of this plan of the Father you can have confidence of a secure place at His table. Well, you may be sitting here this morning saying, I, I, I'm, this is some deep stuff, right? <laughs> and and, and I, I'm interested in Christianity, but how, how could I know that I'm, I'm one of those given ones? How could I know that, that I could be part of this plan? Well, Jesus' word for you is actually a, a, at the end of that section in John seven thirty seven that I read earlier. He says, if anyone looks to the Son and believes in Him, let me find it, make sure I'm getting it right, John 6, 40, for this is the will of the Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. 
Friend, you must believe. You must come to an end of yourself where you stop trusting in your own righteousness, in your own goodness, in the things you've done, and you lay hold of Christ that He died for me. He makes me accepted before Him, and He will welcome you into His family. You don't have to try to clean up your life and try to improve your life. That hasn't been going very well. How do I know? Well, I'm another human being just like you. You just need to go to him. Go to Christ. He will forgive you of it all. And then he will change your heart and give you a desire to faithfully follow him and to turn from your rebellions and make him your king. And then you will know you are one of those given ones. And you will know Jesus wants you to be at his table for all eternity. So don't complicate it. Go to him. Go to him. For the believer, this should produce tremendous humility in our heart. If you were a believer in the Lord Jesus, it wasn't because you, had, you made right choices in life. You, because of you, you're smarter than, than, than your neighbor who's a pagan, your neighbor who's a Buddhist, your neighbor who's, who, who's an atheist. No. It was his grace. It was all of grace through and through from first to last. This should produce humility. It should produce thankfulness. Thank you, Father, for giving me to the Son. Thank you for Jesus laying down his life for me. Christians of all people should be the most humble and thankful people on planet earth because we realize nothing, anything good in us is ultimately from God. It's all from him. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Well, that's the passion of Jesus. I desire that they would be with me where I am. The plan of the Father, these, who's he praying for? Who is Jesus desiring to be with him? Those who had been given to him by the Father. And now, lastly, the pleasure of his people. Father, I desire, back to verse 24, in case you got lost in the mix, Page 1,456. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' heart desire is for his people to be with him. To be with me, Jesus says, where I am. And obviously Jesus means here bodily. Jesus is as the eternal second person of the Trinity. He existed with the Father and and the Spirit in eternity past in this eternal love relationship. But 2,000 years ago, the eternal second person of the Trinity took upon a human nature, was born of the Virgin Mary, and lived on this earth for 33 and a half years. And he took upon that human body permanently. He rose from the dead and was glorified, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is the eternal, forever God-man in a glorified human state. And so, as to his divine nature, he has a nature as God that is omnipresent. But the person of Jesus also has a human nature. And so this prayer for his believers to be with him is something that ultimately is answered in eternity future. But it's not merely to be with him. To be with him at the table but also to see him in his glory. 
to see him in his majesty, in his splendor, in all that he is. Now we can see something of Christ here and now. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says to the Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. Now, when we read that, we may not completely understand that because you have to understand glass mirrors in the ancient world didn't exist. You know, we can look at a mirror with pretty amazing clarity. In fact, some of you ladies may have those like makeup mirrors where it blows up your face to like, you know, three feet wide and you can see like every blemish and you can do your little thing. Uh, We have amazing mirrors today. But that's not how mirrors were in the ancient world. You know, it was like, kind of like maybe looking at the side of a car that's been nice and shiny. Metal mirrors where like, you can kind of see the image but it's not real good. Well, that's how we see Jesus now. Because of the reality of our own sin. Because of the reality that sin taints even our thinking. That that, that we could read a passage a hundred times over. And on that hundred time. Oh, there he is. Because of our own human weaknesses. I mean, we all to some level in this Digital information age have a kind of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, right? You know, there's beeps and buzzes and, you know, it's hard for us to concentrate and think. So there's all this human weakness, there's human sin that we don't see Jesus as we ought to. But there will come a day where we will see him in his glory. And we will gaze upon him in all of his majesty. And this is his heart desire. Just in the same way that maybe a, a, a bride on her wedding day, you know, she just goes all out to make sure she looks as beautiful as she possibly can. She wants her groom to see her and to delight in her. Jesus longs for his people to see him in all of his glory. Matthew Henry applies this principle to the heart of our Lord. He says, Christ speaks here as if he did not count his own happiness complete unless he had his elect to share with him in it. You see, this this is what makes heaven so attractive and wonderful and glorious is the reality that this is where Christ is, our Savior. I mean, if you are a Christian here this morning, you no doubt have had those moments in your walk with the Lord where, where you, you learn something new about who God is, about who Jesus is, and, and your heart is thrilled and it swells up with love for Him. This is who He is. And all eternity will be like that over and over and more and more. Samuel Rutherford The English Puritan said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and have thee still, it would be heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Christ is the main attraction of heaven. George Hutchinson says the glory and happiness of heaven to to the elect will consist much in being in Christ's company in whom they delight so much on earth to follow the Lamb wheresoever he goeth and to enjoy him fully without separation anymore. For so is heaven here described in Christ's prayer that they may be with me where I am. Friends, is it not a joy 
to be in the presence of the object of your love. Whether it's a relationship with a close friend, maybe a friend you haven't seen in a while because distance and geography has separated you, but then to be with them again. Or maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a relationship with a child to be with them. There's that joy. It's one of the wonderful things about, uh, about holiday celebrations, to be together with family, to be with those whom you love. Most family get together. <laughs> There's a sweetness of being in the presence of the object of your love. And so it is at the table of Christ for all eternity as we gaze upon him in his glory. Johnny Erickson Tata, that amazing woman who became a quadriplegic after her diving accident. She has an amazing book on heaven. She tells a story about a little boy named Jeff And at the end of a five-day retreat for families affected by disabilities, a microphone is passed around so that all the participants could share a couple sentences about how meaningful the week had been, how fun it had been. And this little freckled-faced, red-haired Jeff raised his hand. And everybody was so excited to hear from Jeff. Jeff had become almost everybody's favorite. He was a little boy with Down syndrome. And he says into that microphone, let's go home. (laughs) Of course, everybody laughed, but then it had become known that his mother had told Johnny his dad couldn't come to the family retreat because he had been to work. And Jeff really missed his dad back home. so is the homesickness of the child of God. We know that we're not finally home. That this world as we know it is not the final destination. But that one day we will be with Jesus and we will see him in all of his glory. And and notice, look back at the text again. To see him in his glory, verse 24, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. And then notice this next phrase, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's interesting. Jesus says that they would see me in my glory for, this is like an explanation This is an elaboration of what this glory must be. Namely, that part of the glory of Jesus is the love relationship that he has with the Father from eternity to eternity. That's amazing. That's the one attribute that Jesus highlights that emanates his glory and splendor and shining character is his love. Many writers throughout church history have called this the beatific vision, which is just a fancy way of saying that the blessed sight of seeing God in heaven. Charles Ross again says this beatific vision to which they shall attain he has gathered them when he has gathered them home to be with himself. It says and if on the holy mount was so sweet if the attractions of that moment were so ravishing that Peter said it is good for us to be here what shall it 
be to behold the countless unfoldings of his glory throughout all eternity. Indeed, it will be no mere vision, for we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see what this author is alluding to? When, when Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember they saw Jesus in all of his glory, and Peter's like, we're, we're, we're staying here. But Jesus says, no, now's not the time. But all eternity will be us gazing upon the glory of Jesus forever and ever. And it's the glory of his infinite, eternal love. Jonathan Edwards is often criticized for, for being a, a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. His most famous sermon is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But if you, if you trace some of the language of Jonathan Edwards, the language that he uses over and over in all of his sermons is things like sweetness, delight, ravishment. And all of it is in connection to God. In fact, my favorite sermon of Jonathan Edwards is the end of his sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. It's called Heaven, a World of Love. And, and I really think it could have been preached from even uh, John 17, 24 because as Jesus speaks of his own glory, he speaks of it as this love that existed from before the foundation of the world. Listen to a little glimpse of this sermon. Edward says, God is the foundation of love as the sun is the foundation of light. There even in heaven dwells God from whom every stream of holy love, yes, every drop that is or ever was proceeds. There dwells God the Father from the Son and God the Spirit united as one in infinite, dear, incomprehensible, mutual and eternal love. There dwells God the Father who is the Father of mercies and so is the Father of love. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for it. And there dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of love, who so loved the world that He shed His blood and poured out His soul unto death for men. And there dwells the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the divine love in whom the very essence of God, as it were, flows out and there is breathed forth in love. And there in heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines for us full glory, beams of love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth rivers of love and delight. These rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment in their hearts as it were deluged with love. That'll preach. Edwards draws our eyes towards heaven, the eternal three persons of the Godhead in us being bathed, deluged in his love. Again, friend, ponder those moments in your Christian life where you catch a glimpse of the greatness of His love for you, that He would love you, that He would care for you. And then ponder what all of eternity will be like when we see His love in its fullest splendor. Friends, this is huge. We live in a cold, hard world. A world where people break promises. Love between husband and wife is often broken. What was one couple giddy-eyed and in love with one another over time becomes hatred. We live in a world where love that once existed between parent and child Friend and friend goes cold. We live in a hard, cold world in which death separates those closest and nearest and dearest to our hearts. But friend, here we have a promise of a world of love. 
that death will not separate, that promise will not break, that relationship will not crumble. We catch a glimpse of it here. We all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. But there we will see it most clearly. Friend, if you have no ravishment in your heart for the Lord Jesus, if there's no desire for Him, then you haven't yet been made alive. You need to turn to Him even now so that you know that you are on that trajectory to be with Him at the King's table for all eternity. But how could this desire be accomplished? Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am that they may see my glory How is this prayer answered? Well, we have to go to another prayer of Jesus. You see, this isn't the only prayer recorded of Jesus on the evening, on the the time before he goes to the cross. The other prayer is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus catches a glimpse of the horrifying reality of what he's about to experience as he will bear the full throttle of hell upon his back for those three hours that he suspended between heaven and earth when the blackness of darkness comes over the face of the earth. And in anticipation of this, he cries out to the Father, Father, is there any other way? If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he prays that prayer three times over. But he also prays, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Father. You see, the heart desire for Jesus' people to be with him, one out, when he faced the reality of bearing in his body all the punishment of hell of every believer who would ever believe. And he chose to endure that so that you would have a place at the table. Let's pray.